Hi friend, welcome to the Quiet Connections podcast. Do you feel anxious and not good enough in social situations? Feel like you're weird, broken or don't fit in? You are not alone. Join Hayley and Stacey on a journey to quiet confidence. Picking up key insights to help you feel more calm and confident. So you can finally speak up, join in and feel like you belong too. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Quiet Connections podcast. I'm Hayley and I'm joined by Natalie Brunswick who is a mum, an occupational therapist, a psychotherapist and she helps parents who are highly sensitive themselves or who have highly sensitive children. And we're going to be diving into what it means to be highly sensitive, how we can deal with overwhelm as a parent, what might be going on for both a child and us when their behaviour is challenging, how we might begin to respond differently. And most importantly, this conversation is full of so much reassurance for you as a parent. You don't want to miss it. Welcome, Natalie. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much. Could you begin by sharing a little bit of your story, please? So, I mean, I'm a mom. We can start with that. I'm a mom to a almost two and a half year old. And, you know, we had a a really unexpectedly rocky entryway into parenthood and parenting and motherhood and all of that. And at the time, you know, uh, so I'm a therapist, I, I work as a psychotherapist, and I'm also trained as an occupational therapist. So I bring both of those lenses to my work with with parents, which is really nice. I, I like being able to pull on both. And yet I had never heard of this term, highly sensitive baby or highly sensitive child or highly sensitive person. I had never heard of that. So, you know, when this little human came into our world, who was a very dysregulated baby, screamed a lot, um, was very hard to settle, um, just like could not leave the house, couldn't get him in the stroller. He had tongue ties and reflux and colic and I felt like everything like as short of actually having a diagnosable medical condition um, was going on with my son in those first few months. So it was just, it was really hard. Um, But I think when I finally found that word, I think he was around four months old. So that's when most parents start to look into sleep training because everyone they know is doing it. And so in that process of going down this rabbit hole and realizing like these methods that are very mainstream were not working for him. Like he was never drowsy, but awake. He would never fall asleep out of our arms or without being fed. Like there was no getting him down (laughs) into the crib. Um, And so I stumbled upon this literature on the highly sensitive child and that sort of expanded and opened up a lot of things for me in in learning how to relate to my child differently, but also in being able to give myself a lot of self-compassion for the fact that that this is actually a different journey than, than other people find themselves on. And it is quite hard. Yeah. So you had this tiny dysregulated baby that screamed a lot and was hard to settle and soothe. And for the listeners, what we're talking about when we say dysregulated is 
the nervous system stress response, which we were exploring back in episode two. And this is when our bodies are sending us messages saying, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. And we might go into fight, flight or freeze mode. But for a baby, our primary response is to seek out help and security from a caregiver. And they do that through making a noise. So Natalie, what was this like for you as a mother? I came into parenthood with this really rich background as a clinician. Um, And I still was completely thrown off course and completely lost my bearings and had all of those same you know, thoughts that a lot of parents do, whether you have a highly sensitive child or it's something else, because there is always something else. Um, You know, there was a lot of self-doubt and a lot of just feeling like I was failing, feeling like I was failing him. I was like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? And so the reason why what you do is so important, the reason why all these online communities are so important and just having these spaces for parents is because we need to have those spaces to connect, especially when we're going through an experience where we might not have other people near us physically who are going through that together. So that's why I got online and started like posting on Instagram and doing all of that stuff because it's it's something we need to sort of talk about and connect with each other on. Yeah, I totally agree, Natalie. And I mean, thank you for sharing that because I'm convinced that every single parent listening can relate to the worries that you're not good enough, those fears of failing and and all of that self-doubt that you've just described. But actually, it's something that's often just not spoken about. Mm -hmm. So for some of us, our stress response is more easily triggered than for other people. And we know that this can occur through experiencing adverse childhood experiences known as ACEs, which can teach us that we're not safe as we are or where we are. And we've covered this in episode two. But the sensitivity could also be because you were born highly sensitive, which is what you're describing here with your child. And research tells us that one in five people are highly sensitive. And I would definitely include myself in this figure. So do you also consider yourself to be a highly sensitive person, Natalie? It's an interesting question. I've thought quite a bit about this. So I, according to my mum, I was not born like my son. So I did not come into the world like with the same sort of um, sensitivities that he has. Um, I was a really easy baby. I slept a lot. Like, so right off the bat, like it doesn't seem like I came into this world as a very highly sensitive child in the way that my son is like, he's like on the extreme end of the spectrum. If we're talking highly high sensitivity. Um, But, you know, there. I think along the way, and here's the thing with high sensitivity and trauma and and toxic stress and all of that, and and, and Elaine Aaron talks about this, Elaine Aaron being, you know, the lead researcher on highly sensitive people, um, will say that, you know, high sensitivity can also, A, be exacerbated by trauma. So if you're someone who's born as a highly sensitive person, you're much more sensitive to stressful experiences um, in your environment that can lead to symptoms of trauma or can affect you more deeply than let's say a sibling who is not born with the same sensitivities as you. Um, and, And in that same effect, you know, a lot of the symptoms that we see with 
trauma or growing up in a house that has a lot of stress and having a high ACEs score are quite similar to what we see with high sensitivity. So we see a lot of dysregulation, we see hypervigilance. There's there's a lot of stuff that we see that that they're really quite similar. And I think the lines can get quite blurred between the two. Um, that's just me. And I think there is a real interaction between them. So I would say like, I definitely wasn't born as highly sensitive as my son. And it's hard for me to know exactly what I was like at that age. Um, but I think through, you know, I have an ACEs score of four. So, so for anyone who wants to go Google that, you could go for it. Um, but there was a lot of stressful experiences in my childhood that in many ways could have molded me into a more highly sensitive person if you want to look at it through that lens. And so to take that even further, you know, that could have then shown up in my son through epigenetic changes. I'm also married to, you know, grandchild of Holocaust survivors. So there's lots of stuff that could have been inherited by my son that would have led it to be being expressed in a more extreme way with him. This is fascinating, that potential overlap between ACEs and high sensitivity. Okay, so I wanna dive more deeply into what it means to be highly sensitive because I actually think that this will be a new term for many of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking us through this please, Natalie? So Elaine Aaron is the woman who really brought this term into being um, and she is the lead researcher. Um, and so a lot of this research comes from her. And so according to her research, there are four main ways that high sensitivity shows up. Okay, so the first one is called depth of processing. And so this just means that, you know, highly sensitive people are always taking in a lot of information uh, like that's going on around them, but they're thinking about it really deeply. Okay, so they're assessing everything, they're analyzing things. So we're processing things at a certain depth that other people might not be. The next trait um, is called, it's overstimulation. So this is one that is probably the most obvious with our little highly sensitive babies. Um, And overstimulation is really this idea that we're more likely to get overstimulated, more likely to get highly aroused or dysregulated by stimuli. And when we're talking about stimuli, we have internal stimuli. So this is, the process is called interoception. So this process of noticing what's going on inside of our body. And then there's the stimuli outside of our bodies. Okay. So everything that's going out, going on around us. So highly sensitive people and highly sensitive kids are much more attuned and much more sensitive to all of these messages that are coming at them. And to some degree, the way I see it, because I am a trauma therapist, and so I see everything through this lens, which is like, we have to think about it almost like the stimuli is coming in and the brain is saying like, this is dangerous, dangerous. So, you know, a little baby who's having like gas pains or has a new tooth coming in. Some kids are totally unaffected by that, right? Some kids like parents will say like the tooth pops up, they had no idea it was coming. And other kids who are tend to be more highly sensitive kids are incredibly affected by this pain. You know, it disrupts their sleep, they don't want to eat. And so on some level, the body is experiencing this pain as somewhat like unsafe, as somewhat 
dangerous, okay? It's, it's highlighting this experience for them and saying, pay attention to this. So that's the overstimulation piece. And so that really is the trickiest thing with, with our little highly sensitive babies because, because they get so overstimulated um, and their nervous systems get so dysregulated, they need a lot more help from their parents to downregulate, to co-regulate, to bring them back down to a state of calm. So they might need like to always be feeding to sleep. Um, the sucking reflex turns on our parasympathetic nervous system, puts us into that rest and digest state of calm. They might need a lot of sensory input in the form of like bouncing and rocking and or shushing, that auditory simulation, singing. So these kids just need, they need more, more help from us to regulate to, and to compensate for that tendency to get overstimulated. And, and we will see this in bigger kids too. It'll just show up differently. So the next one after that is called emotional responsiveness or empathy. And it's actually really cool. This one is super cool. So they've done brain scans of highly sensitive people and they actually show that the highly sensitive people have more active mirror neurons. And these mirror neurons, does this relate to being able to feel other people's emotions? A hundred percent. So that's where, yeah. it's, that's where it goes. Yeah. So essentially mirror neurons are these neurons that we have in our brain, which is where all our neurons are, um, that are a tool to help us actually learn through imitation. So they what happens is when there's like a little baby or a child who sees, you know, you, let's say using a spoon to eat your soup, there's a neuron that's going to fire up in the baby's brain. That's almost like the brain is doing the action, even though the child is not actually doing it. So it, it allows for this mirroring of what we're seeing. And we learn through that, through that process. So if we're talking about empathy and highly sensitive people, if somebody is feeling really sad, the part of our brain that is related to that and the mirror neurons in our brain that are related to that will also light up and we'll feel that. We will feel that pain. We will feel that sadness. So highly sensitive people are really hardwired to just feel things more deeply um, and really perceive that in what's going on in the people around them. It's, it's bringing up the kind of image of like, you know, if I'm watching the telly, I, I cry at everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then from a, a, the perspective of a parent, I guess, when you are seeing your child struggling, you're experiencing that within yourself much more deeply. You're feeling those feelings. Um, and then, like you say about overstimulation, as a parent, I guess you're you're feeling overwhelmed an awful lot of the time, especially when you're parenting a child who is more sensitive and needs more input and they're crying out for that extra input that maybe you you don't feel like you can give them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have more of those mirror neurons and your, your child is, let's say, throwing a tantrum and they're expressing like rage, right? that means you're going to have more of those neurons firing in you that are actually going to mirror that emotion that your child is feeling. So it's going to take you more energy and effort to regulate that. 
than someone who's not highly sensitive. So it's a lot of work parenting as a highly sensitive person. It requires this like being thrown to the extreme and constantly bringing yourself back, which is, it's, it's exhausting. When we were preparing for this interview, we put some questions out to the community. And one of the things that came back was that people were feeling really overwhelmed. Mm. And, and also there was a lot of guilt that the parents are responding, not in the way that they want to, but the way that their bodies are just responding in the moment. So what is it that's happening in those moments? And, and how can people kind of press pause and, and think about doing something differently? Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is there's a lot happening. Um, so there's no simple, this, this is exactly what's happening. But before I answer that question, I just want to mention before I forget, because we didn't talk about the fourth one, but it relates to this question. So the fourth trait of the highly sensitive person is, is that they're sensitive to sensory stimuli. So it's very similar to that first, that, that second one we talked about, about the overstimulation. Um, but just this idea that highly sensitive people are much more sensitive to a smell, a change in the environment, noticing how somebody moves, noticing a facial expression, noticing, um, or, or the sound, right? So we're gonna come back to what you just asked me which is if a child is throwing a tantrum, that's sensory stimuli, okay? That's a loud noise. Mm. And so that is a trait of a highly sensitive person is that you are more sensitive to that. And so I know that from my experience, you know, when my son screams, it affects me more deeply than it affects my husband. Um, And so... I can speak to the truth of that. Like there is something about that just on a sensory level that it is quite dysregulating. So if we're going to talk about why this happens, why do I get overwhelmed? It's multifaceted, right? So there's on a pure physiological level, my body is reacting to the sensory input. It's reacting to the noise. It's throwing my whole system off. Um, And if we talk about like window of tolerance, so to give your listeners just a brief little intro to that, like the window of tolerance is essentially this optimal zone within which we're able to act like rational humans. (laughs) But it's like this, it's the optimal zone in which we're able to stay regulated enough to use our prefrontal cortex, to use our rational mind to say to ourselves, my child is just throwing a tantrum, I'm safe, everything's going to be okay. The problem is, if we're a highly sensitive person, then just the noise can be enough to throw us out of our window of tolerance, so that our rational brain can no longer reason with us and tell us that we're we're safe. And so what can happen is we, we will start to perceive our child as an actual, like, safety threat. Like we'll feel like we're in danger. We'll go into fight or flight and our body will start to just escalate and escalate. And to throw that into the mix, you know, if if you've had a history of trauma, if you've had a history of any childhood emotional neglect or abuse, if you grew up in a home where there was a lot of screaming, right? If you had a parent who was very, who, who yelled a lot, the sound of your child screaming can trigger 
the same response in you that you would have felt when you were a child. Yeah. And one of the things that I've read about is that as a parent, we kind of respond not to the child in the moment, but to our past experiences. Is that mm-hmm. kind of right? Mm-hmm. I think to a large degree, I think it depends on where we are in our window of tolerance. Yeah. Right. So I think when we get bumped out of our window of tolerance, we tend to revert back to like our primitive brain, our limbic system, our survival brain will turn on and guide how we react. And those reactions coupled with, you know, are very much related to our attachment. Okay. So how, what kind of attachment style did we develop growing up is also is going to impact how we, you know, where we go with our child and how we interact in those moments. And then there's, there's the thoughts that we endorse, right? So what's the story I'm telling myself? Okay. So there's the ways that my body learned to react to loud noises. There's a way my body learns to react to danger. And yes, we learn a lot of that in childhood. Um, But there's also the narrative. So what am I telling myself about what's going on? What am I telling myself about what my child is doing? Why my child is doing what they're doing? Is the story that my child is manipulating me? Is the story that my child is, you know, pushing my buttons? Is the story that there could be many stories that we are telling ourselves and those stories can be coming from our childhood. So, you know, I know for me, like my child throws food on the table. Okay. If he throws, that is incredibly triggering for me. And I'm like, my husband's always like, why, why? Like, it's just food on the floor. Like, what is, what is it about that? And like, my mom used to freak out if we spilled. Right. So I can directly link that back um, to that experience. And the story I was given is that you don't throw food on the floor. It's bad to do that. So we continue to endorse a lot of these stories without thinking about it. Right. So it requires that we really take a step back and look at those thoughts and think, well, does it really matter? Like if he throws food on the floor, why does this bother me so much? Like I can just clean it up is the fear that he's going to grow up into this child who's never going to obey any rules. And he's going to right? like, so these stories can kind of run amok. Um, and usually they're very unconscious and we don't even know they're happening. Yeah, of course. I guess the one of the telltale signs is in the language that we use. And on that point, mm-hmm. there's a, we've had a, a question that says, how can I manage my child's behavior when they're not listening and they want to argue with me and they cut me off from what I'm saying? So that says to me that there's a story going on about, you know, the child is doing this on purpose and it's like mm-hmm. the child, child is kind of attacking me. So what would you yeah. say to that? Yeah, I mean, so little kids, just to answer the specifics of that, their executive functioning, their prefrontal cortex is not developed. Their attentional systems are not developed. So they're not very good at like paying attention and like not interrupting or like following a train of thought. They're just not, it doesn't, it's not fully developed yet. But I think what's going on there is probably there's this feel, feeling of, of not being seen or heard by our child. And that is usually triggering a feeling in us of not having been seen or heard by our own parents growing up. And so it's recreating that same feeling. um, But now it's happening with our child. Mm. And this is, 
this is really normal. This happens to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. We, we, we recreate these patterns because we learned how to be in relation with our parents and being a parent is a relationship. So even though we can rationally say it makes no sense, why would I expect my child to, you know, give me the same nurturing love and respect that my, I would have expected from my parents. It doesn't matter that primitive brain, that brain that just wants to like be held and feel seen and feel connected still goes into that place of shame and wounding when our child reacts in those ways that are similar to how a parent might have treated us. Yeah, I think you've really touched on something there that a lot of the people within our community have experienced that sense of not feeling seen and not feeling heard and almost like for me personally, it was like my parents expected me to be quiet, be still, don't touch anything, don't make a mess, don't be too noisy, don't be inconvenient, basically. And mm-hmm. I, can, I can see in my own sort of triggers that noise is triggering for me, mess is triggering for me. And it's I can absolutely relate to what you're saying, about it takes a lot of work to, to manage that and not put that onto somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. And it really requires that we, we take the time to do, to do that work. Um, But it's not easy work. (laughs) As someone who lives it every day, I'm actively engaged in this work on a daily basis and it's hard and you're not going to get it right. Like you're not always going to get it right. Right. So like the good enough parent, the famous good enough parent idea is like you only have to get it right 30% of the time. That's it to be like a good enough parent, you just have to kind of meet their needs, help them feel seen and heard 30% of the time, and they'll turn out fine. So I feel like we can manage 30%. <laughs> okay, that that feels really good. Because I think what I most want to get from this conversation is that sense of reassurance for any parents or would be parents who are listening. Um, and who may have heard our second episode where we're talking about our theory of how we develop social anxiety basically and that it comes from the messages that we're given as a child and we learn that we're not good enough and it's it comes from intergenerational trauma like you were saying and it's you know the messages are passed from one generation to another and another and we parent similar to our parents with the messages that we've learned and um I think it can be really scary when we realize that oh you know I've learned this from my parents and I don't want to be passing this on to to my children so how do I how do I make that that break and I guess it's it's really hard and it don't it may not be possible to completely change that cycle you know we're just starting starting the ball rolling and and we're going to make those small changes and then it's up to our children to make more changes and to continue and it's just (laughs) about having that awareness and open conversation I guess Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think of it like the Olympics, right? It's like we're we're running a little stretch and we pass the baton onto our kids and then they're <sighs> going to do their work and then they're going to pass it on to their kids. Like we you can't heal centuries of intergenerational trauma and messaging and never mind like cultural me- cultural messaging that we still get, you know, all the time. You can't heal that in one generation. And so we can't hold ourselves to that standard. Um, And I think it's really tricky in this world we live in now where there's so much access to information. And so there are so many opportunities for parents to just feel so much shame 
around their parenting and feel like they're just not doing it good enough. They're just not getting it right. Um, And I think we have to allow ourselves the grace of like, it's not on me to get this all right, to do it perfectly. It's impossible. Like it is just impossible. You are going to react. You are going to react in ways that your parents reacted because that is how our brains work. Our biggest, you know, the biggest developmental growth period for our brains is between zero and three. And then as we continue through childhood, they continue. But these patterns are laid down, like they're laid down pretty, like, tightly. And I'm a therapist. So obviously I believe we can change these patterns. This is what I do with my clients all day long, but there's, you're never going to do it perfectly. Right. Let's say you're starting from an, a 10 out of 10 as this like angry, rageful human, you're never going to be a zero. It's just not in your DNA. It's not in your wiring. Like it's just impossible, but you could probably get down to like a three or a four right? You could probably get yourself down to that place where it, it, you don't explode as much as you used to. You're capable of showing yourself compassion. And maybe by the time you're like a 90 year old man, <laughs> you've gotten down to zero. And I think that is the thing. It's like, there is such a preciousness to these little humans and we feel like we have to get it all right for them while they're little and their brains are developing. And this is such an important point, part of their, their development, but healing is a life's journey and parenting is the most stressful time of your life. (laughs) So this, this healing is just, it's not all going to happen in those early years. But you can make the changes, right? So we just have mm-hmm. to learn how to how to take the the pressure off. And and the truth is that pressure, it actually makes it harder for us to do the work that we need to do. Because yeah. if we do mess up, we're so hard on ourselves and we we go into a place that because we're now being so hard on ourselves, the next time our child reacts in a way, we're we're not in our window of tolerance and we're more likely to react. So the way we talk to ourselves pushes us all outside of our window of tolerance as well. Yeah. What's coming up for me is that probably the most important first step is starting to treat yourself with compassion and Mm. accept that you might be behaving this way because of things in your life that have been outside of your control. Whilst knowing that you can, of course, make changes now, but you have to be compassionate with yourself for you know, the experience that you had and and the things that you've learned in order to survive within your family when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, I think there's so much blame uh, from what I hear you saying about some of those letters from the parents, like this idea that it's my fault. And I get messages like this from, from moms all the time, worrying that they weren't, because maybe they had postpartum depression or anxiety, they weren't able to build a healthy attachment, a secure attachment with their child. So there's a lot of blame that gets put on us, right? That parents will sort of see, well, now my eight-year-old is socially anxious. This is my Mm. fault, right? Um, And I think the beauty of the highly sensitive research, and I I love this research for that reason, is that Elaine Aaron really tries to posit it as this benefit. It's like this beautiful it's a beautiful way of being. And yes, it has its challenges, um, but it is this, this gift to some degree. 
And also it is inherited, right? So your child might've come into this world that way, regardless of what you did, right? Yeah. And so we need to sort of let go of the blame. And like, if you had postpartum anxiety and depression, like that's also not on you. Like that's not your fault, right? Um, and if you had difficulty attaching with your baby in those first few years, like attachment is always ongoing. We're always healing. We're always able to move to secure attachment. That's what therapy is, right? That's, mm. that's essentially what we are doing in a therapeutic relationship is holding space for our clients to feel like they can learn how to feel safe within a relationship. So it's never lost. Like it's never like the end of the road. Um, it's not all on you. Um, and there is still so much that can be done, even if a child is experiencing social anxiety at eight. Like I was a socially anxious kid. You were probably a socially yeah. anxious kid. We turned out like remarkably well. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I think we need to sort of do what we can to support our children without maybe going to that worst case scenario of projecting our own um, fears around what we went through onto our children. I don't want yeah. them to go through this because I know how hard it was for me, but they didn't have you as a parent, right? So they're never going to have the same experience you did, but we can go to that place of worrying, like, oh, I effed them up. And now like, they're going to have all of these issues that I had and it's going to be, I'm going to feel terrible. Mm. Like, they're going to hate me the way I hate my parents. And it's just, we go to that place right yeah. they're never going to talk to me they're never going to invite me to their wedding <laughs> whatever it is um and so we want to just try to stay present focused with where we are and where they are yeah presence feels like a, a really key part of this yes it requires quite a lot of presence um in in every way okay so a couple of the questions that we had come in were about what can we do when as parents we're separated and the children that we have are experiencing maybe a, a negative parenting style, negative attitudes, um, emotional distance from the other parent. And we're worried about the impact that that's going to have on them and wondering if there's anything that we can do to support them and help them to maybe open up and talk about it if they need to and feel safe in doing that or or just su support them to realize that the messages they're getting from that other parent aren't necessarily the truth about who they are as, as people. Mm -hmm. I think you just answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is, we can't control what the other parent does, whether they're, whether we're divorced or not, right? Even in couples where parents are married, there's going to be differences between parenting styles. Um, and people will also often talk about this with grandparents, right? So mm. when my, my parents or my in-laws, right, they speak this way, they act this way, and it's very, tr it's very triggering. And um, I think what we need to remember um, is, you know, what the research shows on resilience in kids is if we could just pinpoint one thing that every child needs, it's that they just need a single supportive, consistent, attuned caregiver. Just one, right? So all of the research we see, like sometimes kids don't, both of their parents are, are absent and or not capable of, of showing up for them, but it's, it's a grandparent 
or yeah. it's a te- it's a teacher, right? It's a teacher at school that shows up for them. Um, so we have to remember that the work we're doing and the way that we're showing up, it, it's enough. It's enough to, to provide that resilience for them. Because even if it's not a parent, like they're going to go to school one day, there's going to be bullies, there's going to be, you know, all of these experiences that they're going to come across that are going to be really hard for them. Mm. And so as parents, we don't want to shelter them from any of these difficult experiences. We want them to be able to experience the hard stuff. I mean, to a degree, you know, some stuff (laughs) we don't want them to experience. um, But within reason, um, we want them to experience some of that difficult stuff and know that we are a safe place that they can come back to, to process, to talk about what that feels like, to talk about what it means and to explore what all of that comes with that. So I think there is, I've heard that question just from my community in the past. There's a lot of fear that, you know, people don't act the way that they're supposed to. And especially to come back to our conversation about like, there's just so much information out there, right? So you see all these parenting accounts that say like, say this, not that. I hate those posts. I find those posts to be very shaming um, for parents. And I know those posts mean well, but I feel like parents see those and they think like, oh crap, I said that. Now that must mean I'm doing a bad job. Um, Or when they say the thing that the post told them not to say, they remember that the post said they're not supposed to say that. And now I'm feeling all the shame. That's a whole other conversation. But we do get a lot of messages around all the ways we're not supposed to talk to children, Mm. right? If you're in that community, in that world, and if you're a highly sensitive person, you probably are reading a lot of parenting stuff because we just (laughs) tend to do that. Um, So we have to remind ourselves that like, it just matters that we show up for them, that we show up 30% of the time for them, but that we are there. And it's okay if the rest of the world isn't showing up in that same way. It yeah. can be enough to just have just the one. Yeah. And when you have that one person that you feel that you can talk to, then you don't actually necessarily become traumatized from the experiences that you go through. Mm-hmm. There, there's a huge um, buffering effect. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between trauma and and PTSD, right? Or trauma yeah. symptoms. And so we can experience, two people can experience a trauma and they both won't end up with either like PTSD or complex PTSD Mm. symptoms. And so there are a lot of factors that are going to play into what leads to that outcome. But having that secure base, having that safe space that you can go to, and it's really about, it's really about having that container. It's about knowing that in the world, there is someone somewhere who really is is able to allow you to feel seen, to allow you to feel heard, mm. and to allow you to just feel validated and valued as a person. Like I am, like I'm good enough as I am. Yeah, yeah. This is reminding me of I think some of the work of Brene Brown, where she talks about how things can get in the way of us creating that container for people and being that safe space because we we're kind of conditioned to like go to I need to fix this for you I need to make everything better and as parents there might be a tendency to try and keep 
your children in a bubble so they don't get hurt and they don't have to experience all these horrible experiences that we go through throughout life and Mm -hmm. the worry is that when we jump straight to fixing and we're not sitting with and hearing those experiences then we're almost invalidating that child's experience or saying that it's not okay to feel and it's not okay to express this and then we can grow up believing like we just have to contain it all and we have to fix things and and not actually talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, that opens up a whole, we could do a whole other podcast on that topic, <laughs> but I think, you know, if we're talking about resiliency, I, I can't remember the exact name, but it's the Harvard early childhood research, something or other. Um, it's, but it's, they're a big research institute and, you know, they release these four, four factors that, that lead to resiliency. And one of those is the first one we talked about having that single secure base that we can go back to, that we can rely on. Um, and this, another one, a second one is the ability to self-regulate, which is, which is essentially what you're talking about what we're doing when we are allowing our child to sit with their emotion. Okay. So we're first sitting with them in that emotion. We're co-regulating. We are, we are staying regulated so that they can learn to stay regulated too. And we're naming the emotion for them. Right. So we're saying, you know, are you feeling really sad right now? Are you feeling angry? Like, that must be really tough. What we're doing is we're, we're teaching the prefrontal cortex, which is wh- what allows us to self-regulate, to have a language with which to talk to our limbic system, which is the part of our brain that goes on when we're throwing a tantrum or we're going into fight or flight or when we essentially go out of our window of tolerance. And by giving our children that language, they le- learn to self-soothe. So what self-soothing starts is this co-regulation. I'm holding you, I'm rocking you, I'm shushing you, whatever that looks like. And by giving our children language and emotional language to name the experience, we're actually teaching ourselves to say, it's okay. I'm just feeling angry right now. It's just anger, but I'm safe. Without that language, we forget that we're safe. We really do feel like something bad is going to happen. And by giving ourselves the tool of of talking about the emotion and and feeling like we can really experience the emotion without it being the end of the world, we learn that one, emotions are safe, and two, that we have this way of regulating just by acknowledging the emotion. Yeah, that feels helpful. So you say that there are four (laughs) elements of resilience in children. Mm -hmm. So what are the other two? So the third one, it's self-efficacy and locus of control, which really means that do I feel like I have the ability to exert control on my environment? So we know with trauma, trauma can disrupt our locus of control. So if I never learn that I can have any agency over my experience, um, then I, I lose confidence in my ability to regulate my emotions, mm-hmm. to handle having difficult emotions, to handle interpersonal relationships. I, I develop an external, I can develop an external locus of control, which says that the world is a bad place and nothing good is ever going to happen. No matter what I do, I can't change anything. Yeah. Right. 
Likewise, we can also go the complete opposite end and develop a very strong internal locus of control, which means we're holding on very tightly to like, I can't trust anyone to do anything. I have to be in control all the time. I'm the only one that can make sure this happens. Right. So what we want is a balance between the two. Yeah. How might this show up in parenting? Mm -hmm. So my, my instinct is to go to talking about sleep, but I know this is such a tricky subject to talk about because sleep training, um, it's rife with lots of opinions. This conversation mm-hmm. is, but um, I think what you'll find from a lot of therapists um, will say sleep training is not great. Um, and, and it's not great for highly sensitive children. For some children, it works fine. Um But the reason why I want to bring this up is because um, what a child learns when they call out to you in the middle of the night and you show up, the child learns that I have agency. The child learns that I have control. I can cry and mom or dad is going to come. Okay. So they learn to trust one that, that if I ask, if I do something, there will be an effect on the environment. I Mm -hmm. can affect my surroundings. Um, and they learn all kinds of other things. But that is really where, where we see that we see that with crying to get food, if I cry, then food is going to come. So if we have a lot of neglect, growing up, we learn that I have no, I have no agency, I can cry and cry and cry. And it doesn't make a difference. Mm. And so this is why to close up that sleep training conversation, you know, when we are leaving our children to cry for really long periods of time, you know, sleep coaches will suggest like letting them throw up and doing all kinds Mm. of things that are really just quite heartbreaking. The child is learning that, you know, I have no agency, right? I can't control the outcome. And if I'm feeling really distressed, like I have no tools. And so there's a learned helplessness that gets learned quite young um, in situations like that. So we don't just see it with sleep, we see it with everything, yeah. which is why the most important thing when we're talking about that secure base is attunement. So it's that ability to notice what is my child need and how can I give it to them because that's essentially where we're teaching them that they have agency we're teaching them that they can do something and and they can actually control the environment around them yeah and I think one of the things that came up from talking to our community was that it's actually quite easy to question your own instincts because of you know receiving criticism or well-meaning advice from other people And some of our community members actually mentioned that people would tell them things like, oh, you're spoiling her or you're too soft with him. And so from what you've shared, I feel like it's really important to trust yourself to, well, to trust that intuitive pull that you have within you to respond to your child. And I wonder if there's also a misconception in society that a child is trying to control or manipulate their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think to a certain degree, that is what, if we're talking like that is what children are always trying to do. They're trying to exert some level of control. Um, You know, it's not that they're trying to manipulate you, right? We want to remove us from the, like the equation. It's not about us. So half of that statement is true. They are trying to exert control, but they are not trying to manipulate. 
they are learning, like this is their job. They're going out into the world. They are essentially tasked with trying to learn how do I fit in the world and how do I exist in the world and how do I be in relationship with people and things in the world? And so they are constantly experimenting with how can I get what I want? Like we're human beings. We're driven by like primal desires mostly like we like to think we're highly evolved but like essentially it's like we want things and we want to get them (laughs) so that's what (laughs) children are doing all the time now the goal like the task of the parent is to set boundaries right and to feel comfortable setting boundaries and to feel comfortable when a child expresses their discontent with you right and I think that's the hard part for parents is when when I say no and the child keeps act behaving in a way how do I continue to stay safe and feel regulated and trust my instincts on this while this child is having a meltdown and I'm trying to maintain this boundary so children one need to need to experiment and need to have the space to try to exert their control but two they also need to learn boundaries and learn that Mm -hmm. they're it's not always going to they're not always going to get what they want just because they want it right and so that's the hard part for the parent is is setting the boundaries because you know to come back to bringing things in from our childhood we're always coming up against that so if we had really strict parents we might there's this thing that we see where parents will kind of go to the opposite end so if I have these really strict parents I'll become a really lenient parent if I have really lenient parents I might go the other end so so we have to be mindful of what's coming into the equation for us when we are setting boundaries and also when we're struggling with Mm. the boundaries. So there is something around like recognize the story that you're telling yourself and -hmm. and question what what else could be true and and if it isn't about you what is it about? Yeah a really helpful exercise I like to give to parents is you know, take a minute and sit down and just ask yourself, like, take your journal out or some paper and just ask yourself, like, how did my parents react to me when I expressed big emotions? Mm. And just taking the time to sit with that and really understand, one, what are the responses that my parents gave me that are now embedded in me and that I might just be instinctively doing? Um but also how did that make me feel? And what is that wounding that I'm carrying with me? What is the discomfort with emotion that exists within me? Because a lot of times, a lot of us are, are really taught that emotions are not safe. Yeah. So to come back to that question you had before about sitting and staying with the child, you know, generationally, most of us were raised by parents who kind of had this mentality of like, stop crying, everything's fine. Oh, yes. Like, you know? <laughs> Right. And so we learn that emotions are not a, you know, pleasant or good or socially acceptable. But also if we're someone who has a a history of trauma on a more extreme end, we also learn that emotions to feel emotions is, is really not safe. It's not a safe place for us to be. So to be feeling that it just can be very dysregulated and it can really feel unsafe. So a lot of us have very complicated relationships <laughs> with emotions. And yeah. so when our child is, is having these big emotions, there's a lot going on inside us when that emotion is coming up that's causing us to just be very uncomfortable with the emotional experience we're having. And so we just want them to stop, mm-hmm. right? It's like, just 
just, I want you to stop. I need it to stop because I need to feel better. Yeah. I don't feel safe right now. We don't know that's consciously going on, but that is a big part of what's going on. And in those situations, our gut reaction can be to try to control the environment around us and the children within the environment. And we may go to this place of like, sit down, be quiet, stop causing me this pain. You know, responding to a child in a way that just doesn't feel good, that we don't want to be responding like. And perhaps that's because we didn't receive that co-regulation from our own parents that you mentioned is so important for us, Natalie. Mm -hmm. So what if we were to, to focus internally first? If we could work on regulating our own emotions and nervous system and thought, well, how can I feel better within myself? What can I do? without expecting the world around me to change. How might we begin this process? Yeah. And so the trick is really to learn what, I mean, everything is one awareness into change, right? Or new habits. And so the the first step is really becoming aware of my, my triggers. What is showing up for me? Why is this showing up? What is the narrative? So cognitively, what are the thoughts I'm having? What's the story I'm telling myself? And then two, from a body oriented perspective, what does this feel like for me? Is my chest getting tight? Does my heart race? Do my palms sweat? Do I clench? So just starting to bring this awareness to my experience, what is happening to me? In a t- when my child is having a difficult moment and then being able to implement these tools, right? So how do I stay regulated for me? Does that mean deep breathing? Does that mean putting on music and dancing? Does that mean taking a five minute break and locking myself in the bathroom so I can regroup? Is it, um, so those are more like regulation strategies. And then also, how do I challenge these thoughts, right? So once we have awareness of our thoughts, we can start to then dismantle them and take them apart. Yeah, and this isn't quick work. This might be something that you're working on over many years with a therapist. You might be working with a coach. You might be doing lots of reading around various topics. I think for me, the most important thing is that you stay really curious and you you keep noticing and keep questioning what's going on for me, what might be going on for my child, um, you know, I'm noticing this is the story that I'm making up. What else could be true? So if you were to leave us with one key message, Natalie, what would that be? I think if I could give parents a message, the biggest and most important thing, if you could do any work, is self-compassion work. Mm-hmm. It's forgiveness and self-compassion. I think we live in a very difficult time especially now in a pandemic where we are like, these are not normal rules of engagement for parenting. This is not how we were meant to parent. And it is hard for the most, you know, the person who came from like the most well-adjusted like home where they, everything went brilliantly that like, like it's, it's hard. We were not meant to parent the way that we parent in Western society all alone, locked inside with a six-month-old, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old all day. This is not how yeah. we were meant to do things. And and so it's not our burden to carry. It's not on us. Um, and so we need to allow ourselves that grace and that forgiveness and that self-compassion to just be human um, and just to be doing the best that we can. And, and then the other thing I would say is 
find ways to connect. So find communities, you know, find people any way that you can um, that can share in your experience. So if you're a highly sensitive parent, find highly sensitive parent groups. If you have a highly sensitive child, find highly sensitive child groups. If you can't find the group, start a group, like just find ways to connect. Cause this is the fav- my favorite thing Elaine Aaron says about highly sensitive people is that and highly sensitive parenting is that you need community Yeah, because it, it is a very difficult parenting experience. I can say from my own experience, like with parenting my very highly sensitive child, that it can feel very isolating. Um, and so we, we need ways to share our stories, to tell our stories, to connect. Um, and that is so vitally important to just being yeah. human in general, but especially to parenting. And this is what you're doing now, right? You've created your own parenting community. So do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So I started um, an Instagram account at the beginning of COVID. It's called at the dot motherhood dot map. Find me on Instagram. That is where I share everything. My website is almost finished, so it will be up soon. Um, And I'm actually running a little like free masterclass in January that's called the highly sensitive family so if you're interested just come follow me on Instagram because that's where I'll share all the details about that and essentially it's going to be a space to talk about you know what is the experience of parenting a highly sensitive child what's the experience of being a highly sensitive parent you can be either um, if you want to join us anyone's welcome to join Um, but then at the end I want to create I'm going to have a little you know virtual meet up for parents who do join um, where they can do exactly what we talked about which is just being able to meet other people mm. share in that experience hear what others have gone through um, because I am very passionate about the power of story the healing power of story for those who share but also for those who just listen um, and so I'd like to create a space so so yeah, so that is that's coming down the pipeline in January. Amazing. This is so needed. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much Natalie for coming and sharing your insights and oh, I just hope that everyone listening can just feel that reassurance and and before we go I just want to reiterate that like you just have to be good enough 30% of the time. It's okay. <laughs> yes. We just have to be human. We we can't be superhuman. We just have to be 30% good enough, do our best, and, and they will be okay. Yeah, permission to be in the learning process. Yeah, oh, I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Natalie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes from this episode at quietconnections.co.uk. If you found this episode helpful, then please tell a friend about it or share on social media. With gratitude for the support of the National Lottery Community Fund.